Hey everybody, it's me, Evgeny. Before we start today's interview, I want to let you know about an event later this year, which, if you're into this podcast, will be right up your alley. It's called Data Center World, and it's scheduled for August 16th in Orlando, Florida. Data Center World is the leading conference and expo for data center and IT infrastructure professionals. It's the only industry event that delivers exclusive state-of-the-data-center research findings, in-depth workshops, 50-plus conference sessions, keynotes from industry luminaries, the largest offering of data center technology solutions, and unlimited networking opportunities. Find out more about the event and register at www.datacenterworld.com. That's www.datacenterworld.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. My name is Evgeny, Editor-in-Chief at Data Center Knowledge. We have with us today Brian Cantrill. He's a San Francisco Bay Area real estate visionary. <laughs> and when he's not doing that, he's CTO and one of the three co-founders of Oxide Computer Company, a startup whose goal is to change servers as we know them. Brian, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me. You bet. Thanks for having me. Uh, how old is the company now? How big is the team today? So we have, um, what, I think we just hired our 23rd employee. So um, we are just over 20. And, and how old is the company? Uh, we raised capital at the end of 2019. So um, we got our first employees in in November of 2019. So a year and change. In addition to designing hardware and building a business, you guys are prolific media producers, blogs, <laughs> tweets, podcasts. I guess that's part of uh, building a business today. Is uh, a good. It's, it's a way to, of getting your message out there without it being uh, sullied by the likes of myself. Yeah, you know, we we were joking when we were doing the raise that our entire marketing budget was our four podcast microphones um, that we had uh, in in the garage there, Justice Garage in Oakland, and we we did start a podcast on the metal. Um, we w really wanted to start the podcast that we wanted to hear the world where we were interviewing folks and talking about their history. And honestly, it was a great way to start the company because it uh, it allowed, I mean, yes, of course it gave us, you know, there's some exposure and so on, but um, it was really about uh, wetting the appetites, letting people know what we were doing, um, that there very much is hardware out there and that the hardware software interface is really interesting and alive and there's lots of interesting stuff happening there. So that was a really fun podcast to do. The, the combination of, uh, of, of the combination of being good engineers and being good podcasters is very rare. And, and if you have that, you know, why not take advantage? Um, it I was fun. Yeah, it was. And honestly, I, it was fun because we, and I say was because we haven't recorded since the pandemic, looking forward to getting everyone vaccinated back in the garage. Honestly, I just felt like we were kind of winding up these folks and letting them go. I'm where I, I feel that we, you know, engineers collect so much narrative within themselves over a career. And there's often not outlets to, uh, to let that out. And so I felt like we were just like letting people give their stories and they were just mesmerizing. Really, really fun. And um, I want to talk with your, uh, start with your latest blog, which is on compensation. You guys have yeah. this very unique approach, uh, total transparency about compensation. And very simple, everyone in the company gets about 180K a year, period. Um, talk a little bit about why you went this route. And there's yeah, everybody, I mean, by everybody, I mean everybody, you know, from everybody. CEO, founders, you know, C-level, yeah. everybody gets 180,000 a year. That's it. That's right. That's right. Everyone gets the same amount. And, and, you know, I think, and I say this in the blog post, that it's it, hard to know if that's going to be true forever. And in fact, part of the reason we haven't talked about it publicly is because we didn't know if it was going to be true forever. But the reason that we are talking about it publicly now is because uh, it, it, it is true, and it's true for a bunch of good reasons, and we've seen so much positive come out of it. So in terms of the history of this, um, uh, Steve, uh, Steve talked Jesper Zell and I started Oxide, and we raised capital. We're going to go hire our first employees, and we knew that we were going to be both remote and local, that we were going to have some folks for sure in the Bay Area, and we were going to have some folks for sure not in the Bay Area, and we knew that our earliest hires were not all going to be in the Bay Area. And that there's an immediate question that is going to be answered there, which is, how do you pay people who don't live in the Bay Area? Now, to me, this is not much of a question because I really don't like uh, grading pay differently on people's geographies. I, I think, and I'll tell you that this, I, I learned this lesson very early in my career. So I was at Sun, I was in Menlo Park. 
and one of my colleagues needed to move to Massachusetts to save his marriage. Uh, footnote on that, marriage was not saved. So if you, need to, if you need to move to save your marriage, your marriage may not be salvageable, but he needed to move to, to Massachusetts to save his marriage. And when he moved to Massachusetts, the way Sun had done their calculations, Massachusetts was 5% less than the Bay Area. So they docked his pay by 5%. And you think you're moving cross country, your marriage is falling apart. You know, you've got, you got two kids. You, you've got a lot of strain in your life. And the fact that you can continue to work for the same employer is kind of this real bedrock for you. And to have that employer dock your pay by an amount that is insignificant to both the employer and to him, honestly, at some level. I mean, it's 5%. It's not the, it actually is the principle of the thing. It just piles and on the, you know, the mountain of misery you already have built. Totally. And it just, it feels like, it feels like your company is taking advantage of your personal situation. It's like, oh, sorry to hear about your failing marriage. I guess you won't be needing this. It's like, wait, wait a minute. What? I mean, come on. That's not fair. And that just felt very, very, very wrong to me. I'm like, I'm just not going to do that. I, I, I don't. I think that the the amount that that the company putatively saved over that was lost immediately in his own loss in morale and his own loss in enthusiasm for the company. And this is the thing about software is that so much of what we do in terms of the creation of hardware and software, it is creative endeavor. And creative endeavor is really, really tough to quantify. It happens in weird times of the day. It happens for a weird number of hours. Your most productive hours are way more productive than your least productive hours. I mean, this is not a normal job in a lot of ways. And there are other like jobs like this, but it's you, you really need to, it's, so it's very important with people that you are speaking to that intrinsic motivation. And when you wield comp, like when you bludgeon people with comp and you punish people with comp, you are, are also denting their own intrinsic motivation. And you, in, in fact, you're demotivating them more than the comp itself would motivate them. And so when we started the company, I'm like, we're, we're just going to, we're not going to pay people differently based on where they are. And we knew the folks that we were going to hire were all going to be uh, unbelievable people. And we've been very blessed in that regard. So like, why would we not just pay everyone what we're going to pay ourselves? And you and, said that you, you accept that uh, this may not uh, be practical forever. And if, if it has to change, what, uh, what, what sort of scenarios would this change under? Well, so here's the thing that's been interesting. We have had this idea of, even from like our earliest hires, like, well, for this first group of hires, like, we're going to pay them all what we're paying us. But maybe it won't be true forever. And then with the next group, you know, it, having everyone have this transparent compensation was so uplifting to people that it kind of became part of almost the pitch for Oxide. And we were finding over and over and over again that engineers were encouraged by it. Even senior engineers who were taking a huge pay cut actually loved the transparency. They, and so that was really interesting. And as we begin to think about it more, it's like, well, how will it end? And surely it will. But more of the scenarios where we thought it would end, I, I feel are less likely. And in particular, it does really focus you on making sure that you are not hiring people for jobs that we could do ourselves or that we can or we can that we can work with a vendor to do. So I mean it does actually really sharpen you in terms of of what we do and how. Um and it, it has so it, again it probably it will end it has to end at some point. Um when it does end and I you know said this in the blog post the transparency will remain. Or th that I feel emphatic about. And this has been a real change for me. Um, I used to uh, not believe in the transparency of compensation. I believe that compensation should be fair, uh, but it should be private. And I always, in, when, at, 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 when I was CTO uh, at Joyent, um, working with our director of HR, uh, she and I always made sure that comp was equitable in that if the spreadsheet was left by the printer, people who picked up the spreadsheet would say like, okay, that makes sense. Like there's no injustice here. You know, like there's no one being, yes, people were not paid the same, 
But the people that were making more, it would make sense to people. And I kind of believed in that. But I believe that the, the compensation itself shouldn't be transparent. What I have now really come to appreciate is the lack of transparency and compensation is being abused by many, 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 many companies, like virtually all of them are abusing transparency and comp the lack of transparency and compensation, and they are rewarding people for effectively bad behavior. And when you have people who are, you know, it's the classic bad behavior of like, you know what, I went out and I got a job somewhere else for more money, and now you need to match my this offer. And to which I, my belief on that has always been that this is no longer a fit, not because of the money, but because there's a breakdown in trust. And that breakdown in trust is not resolvable, as it's been always my belief. It seems like in that, in that, in that structure, which is everywhere, um, there isn't an intrinsic level of trust. You, there's, there's a level of trust, in other words, that you will never reach in an organization when that is the case. Right. And that's exactly it. And I, and I think that... You know, for me, organizational trust is so important. For, for me, and this is you know, one of these things you kind of reflect on as, as, as one gets older, we've got a bunch of values at Oxide. They're all really important. Uh, and I feel them all deeply. But boy, one value that I think is it, it, in some ways the deepest for me personally, and I dare say for Steve and Jess as well, is teamwork. It, it teams, everything we do in tech that we achieve that is outsized is because of a team. It is because of a group of people working together on a goal where we do something that is bigger than ourselves individually. Those are all the great things we've ever done. And, you know, I, I think that we should be doing everything we can possibly do to encourage that teamwork and encourage that trust. Trust is, is implicit there. We have to trust other people on our team. And in our future, compensation may not be uniform, but it will definitely be transparent. And because, yeah. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about, before we get to the, the interesting part about you know servers and, and things like that, tell us a bit about how the company has been funded to date. You know, you've raised, uh, was it 20 million? Uh, we raised a $20 million seed. And was yeah. that um, a VC funding? Yep, okay. that was uh, VC. So our view had been um, that we, um, so we're a computer company, as you mentioned, Oxide Computer Company. We are doing a rack scale machine. Our view had been is that there was a need for on-premises compute that had not gone away. There were people that wanted to run their own computers for good reason, economic reasons, latency reasons, and so on and that all these innovations in hyperscale computing were locked up in this small number of companies, Google, yeah. Facebook, and, Microsoft, and so on. And, and, and yeah. And I, I do want to talk about all that just a bit later. Um, I just wanted to ask, or, or maybe you were trying to make that point and I interrupted you, but uh, um, what was it like pitching a, a hardware company well, to VCs? Well, so yeah, I mean, and so, yeah, sorry, kind of a long-winded way of making the point, but we knew that it, it, as we looked at the risks, and in a hard tech startup, you've got, there are different risks. And first of all, rack scale computer, lots of tech risk. What we also knew is there was not really market risk. We know the market is there. We know the market wants this. So there's not market risk. There is tech risk. We knew that there wouldn't be team risk because we just felt very strongly that we'd be able to hire. We'd be able to, we knew there were other people in the world that would be drawn to this mission. And then there's capital risk. And capital risk was the one that we were most concerned about. And so when VCs ask, how can I be helpful? You can be helpful by writing a check. That's what VCs do. So the, the, what we needed was capital and we needed to raise enough capital that we could uh, assure ourselves that we could get to market. And we believed it was gonna take two to three years and 20 to 30 million bucks to go build. So that $20 million seed, and it would have been, we could have raised $3 million many, many, many times over. I mean, we were almost joking to ourselves about how easy it is to raise, and admittedly, that's a reflection of the privilege I've had and the luck that I've had in being in the industry, but we could have raised three million bucks 20 times over. But when you're raising a $20 million seed, you are really forcing a certain level of conviction um, um, uh, in your investors. And that's what we were looking for. We were looking for that level of conviction. And, uh, and fortunately, um, and so we had many investors, potential investors, who were very enthusiastic, but couldn't get over 
the the hump of how much it was going to cost it did, because it costs a lot. Now that said, we believe we're building a ten billion dollar company here, so we believe that there there is and there's a big market here. Uh, we we did find an investor that uh, unfortunately uh, didn't take too long, but found an investor that really shares our worldview about combining hardware and software together. Uh, and we've actually been incredibly lucky. It's been uh, it, it's an amazing experience to have uh, this Eclipse Ventures and Pierre Lamont at Eclipse. Um, on our board, Pierre was the founder of National Semiconductor. Uh, Pierre hired Andy Grove at Intel. I mean, he has a, a worked with Don Valentine at Sequoia for many years. I mean, he, I, I hesitate to say this because he would correct me right now if he heard me saying it. He's a legend, and he says legends are dead. So I'm like, okay, he's not a legend. Fine, you're not a legend. You're, he's an incredibly accomplished investor and technologist, and he's been. It's been great to have someone who really, really understands hard tech um, so as such an advocate for the company it's it's the exception out there I mean it is uh, it honestly uh, most even though hardware has never been easier than it is right now VCs hear hardware and they clench up because they don't understand it and there is I think tons of promise out there especially with all the developments in hardware in the last decade and the ones that are coming. I mean, this is an exciting time with the hardware software interface. And I believe that more people should be investing in it um, because I think you can build really interesting companies. You can do interesting things. And by the way, what are the companies that combine hardware and software? It's these little companies like SpaceX, like Tesla, like Apple. These are companies that believe in combining hardware and software. They've had these outsized results. Like, do you want to participate in companies like that or not? So so let's let's get to the interesting part. Um, I've watched part of your stand for seminar on YouTube, and I encourage all DCK fans to go watch it too. Uh, it's one and a half hours long, but completely worth it. All completely fascinating. Um, a lot of like history of computing and kind of really f formulating the the issues with um, with enterprise computing today as they exist. Um, but uh, explain to our listeners, um, maybe who have, you know haven't seen the. The presentation in a nutshell what's wrong with the service most everybody has in their data centers today in a nutshell the problem is that they're personal computers that's the nutshell problem the problem is that when you buy a rack of machines it's exactly that it is a rack of machines stacked on top of one another that's it those machines don't know about one another they're not engineered together they're in a cabinet but there has been no rack scale design in the enterprise. There's been lots of rack scale design in the hyperscalers. And I would say like a decade ago, I remember thinking to myself, wow, it seems like we're just like stacking PCs on top of one another. And there are a lot of efficiencies and gains to be had by thinking about this more coherently in terms of rack scale design. And then you watch all these designs come out of the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons. And these are all true rack scale designs. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by true rack scale designs? Well, a couple of things. One, I mean, just super, super basic. When you buy a machine from the likes of a Dell or an HPE or Supermicro, that you buy a 2U server. That 2U server has a power supply in it, probably two power supplies if it's an enterprise server. Right? It's, got, it's got redundant power supplies that are converting from AC to DC. And if you look at your rack, if you've got, you know, 22Us in the rack, then you've got... 20 times two power supplies. You've got 40 AC power supplies in the rack. And with all this power cabling, is this the best way to do it? No, it emphatically is not. It is not the most efficient way to do it at all. And what everybody does running at any kind of scale is you do your power conversion in one part of the, one part of the rack, and then you run a big honking piece of copper, it's called bus bar, up the back of the rack, and all your compute sleds blind mate into that bus bar for their power. Power conversion's happening in one spot, not 40. You get better efficiency, you get better everything, better economics, lower weight, I mean, you get, get everything, right? So it's like, it, and that is, and you cannot, right now, you cannot buy a bus bar-based system from Dell or HPE or Supermicro. And that's the tip of the iceberg. That is the beginning as you go down the stack, every single aspect of the stack, every single decision that has been made has been made around a personal computer designed to run an arbitrary operating system that you get like at Fry's. And Fry's is dead. And this should be dead too. 
The, the personal computer should have died with fries because we don't run. We're not gonna go get my, my Windows NT on a CD-ROM and, and install it on a computer. That's not the way compute works now and shouldn't. What we should be doing and what we are doing at Oxide is designing hardware and software together, designing, the, so these things are aware of one another and you can actually, there are lots of things you can go do, lots of things that open up and lots of things you don't have to do. So give me, a, I'll give you a really concrete example. If, and presumably many of your listeners have these 2U servers, if you take the box off, take the top off of that 2U server, there are all sorts of computers within the computer there, things that you can't see. One of them is the BMC, the Baseboard Management Controller. And the Baseboard Management Controller, its job is to make this computer look like a personal computer. So it has things like VGA. Why is a server, why do we have a display port on a server? That makes no goddamn sense at all. And the reason we have a display port is because it's a personal computer. Well, all right, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, so we can, we can start ripping a bunch of things off. And indeed, we've ripped off the BMC entirely and replaced it with a service processor. So perhaps sim similar in spirit, but totally different in implementation. A service processor whose job is to manage a serial line, thermals, environmentals, the fans, and so on. That's a service processor's job. You do need a, a, a you need a, a little embedded controller to do that, but it doesn't need to be this kind of outgrowth that is the BMC. And it certainly doesn't need to be advertising an IP address and hanging out on the internet where vulnerabilities in that BMC are now vulnerabilities in the brainstem of your data center. And BMC vulnerabilities emphatically do exist. And indeed, an Oxide engineer, Rick Alther, found a BMC vulnerability that he presented on, on the Open Source Firmware Conference in 2019, a BMC vulnerability that effectively allowed anyone to remotely own a, a machine that had this particular vulnerability, and he found tens of thousands of BMCs on the internet. That should send a chill up everyone's spine. It's a serious problem. So you've got all of these problems, you've got security problems, you've got quality problems, reliability problems, efficiency problems. It's just problem after problem after problem after problem after problem, and it comes from this, this root problem that we are trying to run personal computers in our data. And why, why do you think, why do you think that is? Why, why ultimately we've basically taken a PC and giving it, uh, given it a, a bigger processor and called it a server? Uh, rather, rather than thinking yeah. this is a, a you know a machine made for different purpose, so let's let's design it differently. It, it is because Intel and x86 rose the uh, on the the volume curve that was the personal computer market. Intel executed very very well, and Intel became the fastest micro, the best microprocessor, the densest fastest microprocessor, the best server microprocessor was an Intel microprocessor. And there was a short period of time where AMD, uh, it actually, it's kind of an interesting little eddy where uh, Intel knew the limitations of x86 and tried to do what I would call a, quote, proper server CPU in Itanium, IE64, when they did a 64-bit CPU. Now, they made a ton of mistakes with that thing. They didn't appreciate how why x86 was where it was. Itanium ultimately was killed because AMD did an end run and they simply extended the x86 architecture in a much more sane way where they could run existing 32-bit binaries and so on and into this product, VMHill, um, which ultimately became the 64-bit the, the microprocessor and Itanium was killed. So that was kind of the last off-ramp to turn us into something that's not the PC. With, with the rise of x86 came the rise of the PC. And when, as x86 begins to basically kill every other RISC microprocessor out there. So if you look at power systems, PA RISC systems, Spark systems, Alpha systems, RIP, 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 those systems all were co-designed with hardware and software and were much better designed at least on the, the systems level. Now, none of those, those companies um, actually was, was really progressing the true rack scale design. None of those companies really leveraged the commodity of the microprocessor. The fact the microprocessor had been, I, I mean, commodity is the wrong word there because it's definitely not a commodity <laughs> any more than an oil platform is a commodity. It's a very expensive uh, piece of silicon. But none of them 
really recognized that the most economical system to build was not just a galactic single machine, but rather smaller machines that were stitched together coherently. That's the bit that they all those companies missed. All of those companies' power is still around, but effectively all those others are not. And th that's where we diverged. And that's where we turned in. We got dragged down this alley that is the personal computer. And the problem is that we, there's been this standoff where you've got hardware on one side, software on the other. Together, they're not making something that's very reliable. They're delivered by two separate companies or three or four. They're constantly pointing fingers at one another. And... The, the, the hardware folks feel commoditized and the software folks don't want to take on the burden of actually making hardware. So we end up with this divide and it's the customer that is lost. It's the customer that is trying to run on-prem that is the loser in, in the current state of the industry. So tell us about this. this so this is obviously a big principle for Oxide, uh, for your thesis, co-designing hardware and software. So how much of the software stack should be you know, co-designed and shipped together with hardware in your opinion? Well, so our belief is that it is all the software to make the computer actually useful. And for a rack scale machine, that means your entire control plane up to the API endpoints and the console to provision VMs. I should be able to take a computer and provision VMs on it. And I should be able to do that out of the box. So that means you guys are building I, a hypervisor in addition to all, all that's this? Right. Okay. Yep. Hypervisor, control plane, um, uh, console, API endpoint. Um, the OS kernel, and then all of then uh, host boot software, and going deeper and deeper, service processor, rooter trust. We are doing all of the software on, on and then stitching all of that together. And all of that too will be open. So that, that's another kind of big belief in the company is that proprietary firmware, which some would argue is a redundancy, um, but proprietary firmware is at root of a lot of these problems. And um, we will have open firmware so people and, and open software. So people will be able to actually see what's in their computer. And proprietary firmware is a problem because um, because the vendors don't update it often enough? <sighs> or? Oh, man, it is a problem. for So, I mean, God, where do you want to start? I mean, it's a, first of all, it's a problem for all the reasons that proprietary software is, is always a problem. I mean, proprietary firmware is just proprietary software that happens to be running very, very close to the hardware. Proprietary software is always a problem. Why is proprietary software a problem? Why do we run open source software at all? Because proprietary software often isn't that good. There are counterexamples to this. There is good proprietary software out there, but they are unusual. Most proprietary software is bad. Proprietary software builds a natural monopoly around itself, and it becomes incentivized to have all sorts of bad behaviors. So what are some of the bad behaviors? It's incentivized to not be that secure, honestly, um, because it can't be, it's not auditable. So all of this time and energy you put into making software secure feels to a proprietary software company like eh, kind of a waste of time, honestly. Uh, it's not a waste of time. It's not a waste of time from the customer's perspective. They want a secure artifact. But for the proprietary software company, it is a bit of a waste of time. And so the proprietary firmware, what's the problem with it? It is low quality. Uh, and they, if you ever sign these NDAs and you look at the source code for some of this firmware, you can see why they're keeping it proprietary because it is embarrassing. It is bad, bad code. And it is clearly being written by people who are mistreated or not not thought highly, very highly of, or don't think very highly of themselves. Because this is like, this is code that lacks self-respect. It's very, very, very bad code. Uh, it is often bug-ridden. It is, it is ridden with vulnerabilities. There are lots and lots and lots of problems with this proprietary firmware. And it, it has these effects upstack. Um, the, the really lasting big effects. And we, you know, years ago, built a storage product at Sun at Fishworks. And the, the problems that we had in the field all had firmware at their root. Every piece of firmware in that box, except for one, had debilitating problems in the field. Um, and actually, the one was a total shady company where the founders nearly went to jail for stuffing the channel DMC. So it's like, I guess so no, one get, no one gets off scot-free. That was S-Tech. But no one gets off scot-free. At every single layer, the... In terms of the the HBA, in terms of the, the the actual drives themselves, the spindles, 
in terms of the boot drives, in terms of the, the LOM, the service processor that was on the actual boxes, all of these things had really, really serious debilitating firmware bugs that caused really difficult to debug, serious, acute problems with okay, our so, so you guys are rewriting firmware and um, making it open source. Are you, are you using, so, you know, this kind of stack of software that you're building, um, are you using any existing open source uh, code? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you bet. I mean, we, I mean, certainly, like, look, we're not trying to, to reinvent it all for its own sake. Um, so you want to use extant components where you can. And so we're using it. We are using extant components to a certain degree wherever we can, honestly. Um, one big extant component that we're using in effectively every place is Rust. We're not actually inventing our own programming language. Um, and Rust has been huge for us. And that, of course, comes with an ecosystem. There's an entire ecosystem of Rust crates, and we're using a lot of crates, honestly, from that ecosystem up and down the stack. Um, we are using them carefully and judiciously, but yes, we are definitely using excellent open source components. We're using Beehive as a hypervisor. We are, um, uh, we are using, Hopefully it's not too revealing to say that we're using Cockroach as a database. We're, um, so we, yes, up and down the stack, we are using extant components, um, but we, are, we don't feel shackled to existing, extant components. And where it makes sense to rewrite something, we have and we will. So we, we've got uh, the courage to actually go our own way, but we are trying not to be foolhardy about the and way the we And the OS do it, is, so. is Linux? The actual, so uh, we are, so we're doing an actual hypervisor on the metals. So we're using, um, it, so we are, uh, Beehive is our actual hypervisor. We're using an Illumos-based kernel, um, but we will be running Linux-based VMs. I mean, from, from where, that's very much implementation detail. We've also got even further down, we've actually got another operating system that we're developing, um, an all Rust-based operating system that's running on the service processor that we call, appropriately enough, Hubris. Um, so th that will also be open source. So we've got um, Hubris on the service processor. We've got uh, what we call Helios, which is uh, in, in the um, uh, running on the actual host CPU. We're doing our own boot software. We're using Beehive. We're doing our own Beehive userland, which is called Propolis. Um, that's an all Rust de novo Beehive userland. Uh, and then we are doing our own control plane, but using using Cockroach as I mentioned. And then what what is this thing going to look like from hardware perspective? What uh... What are the key elements there? So, from a hardware perspective, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, about this in in a in a couple of months. So, I, you know, there's some details that I, that, that I'll uh, I'll wait for that big reveal. We've got some exciting hardware details that that we're very excited about. But uh, certainly, uh, DC bus bar um, integrated switch. So we uh, we got our this thing comes with the switch comes it comes with the switch pair. Um, it comes with rounded switches. Uh, it it will come with the backplane. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that it, it, this will be uh, built in compute and storage and so on. So this is this is a full cloud appliance. It's ready to run out of the box. And, and so the, this co-design message, um, this may be a bit of a tangent, but I think it's relevant. This uh, co-design message has been a big thing for Oracle um, in their marketing materials. Now, Oracle, the hardware vendor versus Oracle, the database or cloud company. And, you know, they sell these big iron database analytics machines and, and they claim huge performance improvements due to specifically to this co-engineered approach. And I'm curious, A, whether this philosophy came with their acquisition of Sun, and you're obviously in the, in the position Certainly. to confirm that, which I guess you just did. Um, yep. And then B, um, what are they not doing with that approach that Oxide can do and take over the world? Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly um, that approach came with Sun. They, they didn't make any hardware before Sun. Um, the uh, I would say Oracle's not really our model here. <laughs> I would say that uh, Apple would be much more of our model um, in terms of what you can go to. I think the M, you, you look at the M1, um, and they're really interesting piece of hardware, right, that is done by Apple realizing, hey, we can design our own silicon and we can integrate it. Um, so th when, you, when you take this kind of de novo and integrated approach, which... Um, Sun definitely did to a degree. Um, I, I can't really speak to Oracle. Um, Sun did to a degree. I would say we are doing it to a greater degree um, because we are, and we look, I mean, like much more, um, I mean, I guess old school Sun, not based on that kind of commodity x86 architecture, 
um, x86 CPUs, but um, really with, again, this de novo service processor and hardware root of trust, very importantly, so you can get actual end-to-end -end attestation. Um, so you can actually know what you're running. You can actually understand um, that you're running the thing that you're supposed to be running. There hasn't been someone who's infiltrated your supply supply your software supply chain. So, um, you know, we have already seen, uh, just in terms of the customers we've spoken with, the um, as we have spoken with them about what we're building and why. Uh, it's interesting to watch customers immediately gravitate to things that only the combination of hardware and software allows us to do. Concrete example. We have a switch. That switch is programmable. We are doing lots of interesting things with that switch uh, to allow people to understand what's actually going on on their network. And you think like this is, you know, there was a company years ago, Boundary, that was really interesting that was showing people just based on packet capture, who's talking to what. That's really, really valuable. In a real-time sense, who's talking to what. And, you know, there's... It's not really an analog for that today, right now. I mean, yes, there are, you can, because your switch doesn't, your switch knows IP addresses, but your switch actually doesn't know what that actual VM is. This, the, the, the VMs that are talking to one another, it doesn't know really, your switch doesn't have that context alone. Your orchestration software doesn't actually control the switch. When the orchestration software, when the control plane actually controls the switch and actually controls the sleds, then you can actually say this VM is talking to that VM. And you can say that this user is talking to that user, or this group is talking to that group. And you can actually visually show people who's talking to what and why. You can say, hey, this database service is talking to the internet. Is I, I don't think that that's supposed to be happening. You know, when you have that higher level of insight, and what's interesting is customers gravitate to things like that. Like, I want that. It's like, okay, interesting, because that is something that requires the integration of hardware and software to reasonably go do. And if we had one of the things that we, you know, in our early earliest days, we were wondering about is, do we partner for the switch or do we build the switch ourselves? And the conclusion we came to again, relatively early is, no, 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 we need to build the switch ourselves. And what we've seen is decisions like that be really vindicated with the customer base who are, who are desperate to understand what's going on on their network and why. And they're right now they're having to, to do that by stitching together six different things, and it's really painful. And, and are you taking any existing open source uh, designs from the hardware perspective, uh, you know, OCP Open Compute Project, um, which uh, Hyperscaler is kind of spearheaded? Are you taking any of the, any of those ideas? Because there's switch designs there, there are server designs, and there are a little bit, uh, kind of. I mean, or the specs, I guess. Those, yeah, the, exactly. So OCP. Love OCP, love the uh, the vision behind OCP for sure. Very supportive of that effort. Want to engage in it. Want to encourage it. The the actual like, it's a little bit of a myth that if like if like okay, I want to go make a an OCP machine. Those designs are um, well. One the the those designs are still pretty traditional. I I love Tayoga Pass for example. But that's still got a BMC on it. Still got a, has an. And that's a Facebook on it. I don't want design server, right? That's a Facebook design, yeah. Uh, and the Facebook designs are far and away the most complete um, on with OCP. Um, OCP is getting better and better. And again, we want to be. Uh, we think that standardizing things across the industry is is the right move and want to be a part of it. But the reality is where OCP is right now. It's not designs that you can just go build. You actually, they're pretty far off from what we want. Um, they're also, the the excellent Tioga Pass designs, for example, um, are very wedded to a particular kind of Xeon, um, a Xeon D, that are not parts that we're interested in. So, um, you know, as soon as you start to diverge a little bit from those things, you might as well diverge completely because it's, it, you know, you either kind of, you're taking all of it or none of it more or less. Now, that said, we're very aligned with it in spirit and want to find ways to contribute and collaborate and work with other people. And we're all into all that stuff we're, we're very into. It's just OCP itself is not 
right now at a and that's part of the problem honestly um if it were easier for people to take an ocp design and just have it go be built and then it came with the software which is the other problem with ocp is it really doesn't um the open firmware in ocp is a very new effort unfortunately but but ultimately um, um maybe simplistically put your your goal is to bring kind of all the benefits that hyperscalers get from from you know having the luxury of co-designing their data centers and and hardware from scratch for their specific applications bring those benefits to kind of the broader enterprise it Mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly it so and a lot of that a lot of the benefits that hyperscalers get come from scale Mm, some of them for sure i mean so i mean the the benefits that really come from scale are when you get to dc sized When when you get beyond rack sized and you get to, you're actually building by the data center, not by the rack. There are things that absolutely they are able to do that the enterprise buyer is not able to do. The enterprise buyer is not able to build their RDCs. The enterprise buyer is not able to locate their DC next to a dam for its cheap hydroelectric, right? The enterprise, so the enterprise buyer, and in particular, one of the major divergences between the enterprise buyer or the enterprise DC and the hyperscaler DC is around power budget per rack. So we are targeting a 15 kW power, in terms of our power budget per rack, it's 15 kilowatts. If you talk to hyperscalers, they'd be like, oof, that's like paltry. Like, what can you, can you even power a wristwatch with 15 kW? And you talk to the enterprise and they're like, ooh, that is at the outer brink of what we can The average in the enterprise like Uh, five, seven, even a lot of them are below. Five. I would say the average is yeah. God, I hope it's not five or seven. I I, I hope for our According own sake. It's, I, it, in, it, it, that's interesting. I mean, I think it's more like ten plus um, in terms of new DC build out. I think you're I more looking at ten to fifteen. Um, but we have talked to folks who in their old the, the lowest number I've heard from anybody in their oldest DCs is four kW. So I think you got four kW as an absolute floor uh, with us. So we will have you know many sleds in the rack, and you'll be able to depop the rack to bring its power draw down. Um, so we will be able to get you know. But at four kW per rack, it's like where that's that's like two GPUs, right? I mean that's like that is not very. I mean it's not two. Or two, but it's not very many. Um, the um, so what we are targeting is like 15 kW. If you talk to kind of the Googles and Facebooks of the world, they're at like 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 kW per rack, which is like no, definitely not in that department. And we're not like doing any exotic cooling. So water cooling is a no thank you for at least for me personally right now. I think for most enterprise DCs, it's a no thank you. Um, so we are that is a major point of divergence, and I think that is where you do see hyperscaler advantages that are hard to translate to the enterprise. Hope to get to those at some point. Some at some point in a big. A glorious oxide would love to be able to partner with DC providers to be able to provide that as well. But that is that's definitely further mm-hmm. away. And and you mentioned earlier, um, obviously you guys believe in there's a, there is a market for on-prem enterprise hardware. Um, how I, I guess how big of a market do you imagine being out there? And do you see growth there uh, going into the future? You know, given given we given do. that given so, that a lot of workloads are going to the cloud, uh, it seems like they're they're not they're not yeah, all going workloads to the cloud. going to the cloud. Yeah, how yeah, are you thinking I about mean, that? Oh. Well, so first of all, the cloud's been around for a while, and so workloads that are a fit for the cloud are probably there. Uh, there are so you got to look at a bunch of stuff that's on prem. Is there stuff that remains on prem? Is on prem a lot of it for good reasons? What are those good reasons? Well, first and foremost, economics. The cloud's expensive. Uh, and renting compute is expensive when uh, you have a lot of compute. You will pe- spend a lot of money renting computers. Like, Don't I have enough compute to actually buy a computer? Um, it turns out like the economics are much, much, much better to buy a computer, especially with how long a computer lasts. I mean, one of the other, you know, Moore's law is emphatically slowing down. How long do a, how long does a machine last? You look at a machine that doesn't have rotating media, doesn't have spindles, it's got flash, um, and that has that it's got obviously CPUs, it's all semiconductors. That thing will last for a long, long time. And that are we capital, talking five years? You, Ten? I mean, we had machines running in production, not for good reason, but for you know, we didn't necessarily like this. But I think you could talk to any big shop that has got machines that are running in production for seven, eight, nine years without upticks in mortality. 
It's like, yeah, we want to get rid of this thing for all sorts of other reasons, but not because the machines themselves without, are Without optics and mortality of the machines, then the human stuff, maybe that's, yeah, that's right. different. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. We're seeing a, a acute upticks in mortality from our actual IT staff, but not from the, um, which is telling, right? That's really interesting. We don't know how long CPUs last because Moore's law has been on such a cadence that we rip them out. They don't make economic sense to run. That's changing, that will change. And a CPU made today, it's going to be economically incentivized to run for a much longer period of time. How long? We don't know. I, I think yeah, five years, definitely. Seven, probably. Nine plus, it makes sense. The servers you guys are going to make, uh, you're thinking they're going to last for longer than, than the normal like three to five year um, average? Absolutely. Absolutely no question. We are designing these machines to be, I mean, we're designing our, the, the rack, which is the, the, the bit, I mean, you can replace your sleds over time, but the rack, it, 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 we are designing the rack to have a 10 year plus lifetime. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we are definitely believe that yeah. these things will have a long, long service life. And we are, we are building them with a long service life in mind. And why would we not do that? Why would we not engineer our compute to look more like infrastructure that survives for a long period of time. You, when you build an oil platform, it's gonna be in service for more than three years. And and so we now, again, there've been good reasons why we haven't done that because of Moore's Law, because of the darn scaling back in the day, but that is definitely, that's definitely done. Um, so we, we think that these things are gonna run for a long time, and yet we're still trapped in these uh, these Denard scale, scaling era PCs that we threw out once every, you know, a year and a half, three years, because they were being replaced by something twice as fast, which is definitely not happening now. And, and so what stage are you guys at today? Um, is there a, a design already done or multiple designs? Um, how far along is the software stack? Um, and then, you know, when are we going to see Oxide computers on the when market? When are we going to see it? Exactly. When are we going to see computers on the market and look for us in 2022? That's the goal. So um, you're going to see a lot more detail from us in a couple of months. And we are already working with folks who are going to be our first customers. I'm very excited about that. They're very excited. We're very excited. Um, but the... Um, for other folks, we are going to be talking a lot more about what this machine actually is in just a couple of months. And folks that are interested are going to be able to, to, to sign up. And, and in, indeed, folks can sign up for our mailing list now um, and express their interest that way. Um, and if there are uh, listeners out there that are like, God, I really need this thing yesterday, uh, they should definitely reach out. And we would love to love to talk with them, get their perspective. And we know that you know, th this is a long game. We're in it for the long game. And I would love to tell people we're going to have a product in market in the next couple of months, but it just takes longer than that. Um, so, but we, at the, at the pace that we're currently on, we, um, we are, are fully expecting to be in market in 2022 with a product. Is there a sweet spot in the market, um, in terms of customer type, maybe enterprise size, uh, maybe a vertical, I mean, you know, you think will will really gobble this up? Yeah. And I think it's the, those folks that are running on-prem for good reasons and the folks that are running on-prem for good reasons tend to be larger. So it, it, it tends to be an economic driver. Um, and actually to go back to kind of your earlier question about asking, is this gonna grow or not? Uh, we actually do emphatically believe it's gonna grow because we believe that as you have SaaS companies that themselves become multi-billion dollar companies, those companies are gonna be wildly incentivized to be on-prem for all the economic reasons why you wanna own your own computer. And right now, they are staring into an abyss that has Dell and Supermicro and HPE at the bottom of it, and it is economically not viable. Would we believe we were gonna give people an economically viable off-ramp from the, the public cloud onto a private one, onto an Oxide private cloud? So that's where we see a lot of the growth happening. I think that is happening faster than we thought it was gonna happen. I think we think this is going to play out over you know a decade plus, and what we have seen is more and more companies approach us, who we viewed as all public cloud companies, but as it turns out, they are really considering getting on prem because the cloud bill is absolutely killing them. Uh, the other thing that's kind of funny is when you talk to folks who are like, "Oh, thank God, this is capex as opposed to opex, right?" And you know, I've been in this business long enough to remember that the cloud kind of exploded on the back of like, "Oh, thank God, this is right. opex, not capex." Um, but we are now kind of flipping that around and CapEx budgets are big and unused and OpEx budgets are strained because of the, of the public cloud. 
So as we see these SaaS companies go from venture-backed, grow-at-all-cost companies to S1-filed public companies that actually are like, no, no, we're building a SaaS company for the next end decades, and we actually need to get our cogs under control, that often involves on-prem compute. So we're, we're seeing a lot of interest there from, from a market perspective. So as you can imagine, those SaaS companies run across all different kinds of verticals. Right. You know, those are everything from like taxi companies and food delivery companies and data companies and marketing companies. And you know, it, it, the, the common theme across all of the folks we are talking to is compute and information management is core to that company. Now they are per Mark Andreessen's Hypothesis from 2011, software is eating the world, and so they are increasingly in many different kinds of domains. And then, of course, we've got many folks that are, are extant companies and extant verticals for whom the cloud is only a limited option. Uh, and many of those, some of those are bandwidth intensive. If you're bandwidth intensive, if, you've got a lot, if you're pushing a lot of networking traffic, uh, the, the public cloud will break you because the cost is outrageous it's very very expensive for bandwidth uh in the the public cloud and the margin on, on bandwidth is really really good in the public cloud and if you are a company that pushes a lot of bits over a wire that's not margin that you're interested in giving up to somebody else so those are kind of our our earliest customers um a bunch of different verticals i would say the other thing they've got in common is they are stuck on prem and they are almost always sick of being treated like an idiot by their vendors who are treating them as if they've never heard of the public cloud. And these customers have very much heard of the public cloud. Indeed, many of these technologists that we're, that, that we're engaged with, their careers effectively post-date the cloud. Of course they've heard of the cloud. Of course they've used the cloud. And they are on-prem for these, the, these reasons that are very important to their company. And they are stuck with vendors who are treating them like they've never heard of the cloud or like they're stupid. And they don't like that. And they shouldn't like that. No one likes that. I and I was on the other side of this and I was treated that way and I hated it. Um, you know, I hated hearing that you know, every time we had a quality issue, we were always being told that they had never heard of this issue from any other customer. This is the first time that they'd ever heard of this issue. And you're just like, bullshit. And, and therefore because we're not going to solve it or... No, we're not going to solve it. And also then you realize, I mean, this is like the, just the, the sad thing is like you realize they don't know how to solve it because they actually don't know how their own product works because they have taken this cookie cutter approach where they've taken these PC designs and they're just stamping out the next one without actually understanding how things properly work, without actually understanding where the actual margins are. And so when you have a pandemic of dim failures, as we did, or you have IO outliers in terms of latency where you've got the drive resetting itself, you are effectively putting more stress on their hardware than they have ever done. And they're just disoriented by it. And you can kind of like, to a certain degree, like you're kind of taking a rolled up newspaper to the house pet for pooping on the carpet. Like you can do it, you can take out your frustration on it, but it's ultimately like, it doesn't know what it did. And it doesn't know what it did wrong. And that's what I found with a lot of these vendors where it's like, they actually don't understand how their own products work. And then they refuse to give you any visibility so you, the customer, can understand it. And then you realize that every savvy customer has actually left them and is on the public cloud or is a public cloud. So that's the gap we're sailing into. Okay, Brian, that's all I have. Thank you so much. You bet.